You're listening to a Big MX Radio Podcast. Brought to you by Arma Energy. Presented by Fly Racing, W Wheels, Bill's Pipes, Just One Helmets, X-Brand Goggles, Shades of Grey Custom Helmet Painting, Rhino Power Sports Supplements, Roy Borton Suspension, Watts Perfections, and Golden Tire. Simply the best, motocross and supercross news from around the globe. And now, here's your host, Brad Gephardt. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink, Big MX Radio Podcast Show, brought to you by Fly Racing, X-Brand Goggles, W Wheels, Bills Pipes, and Just One Helmets. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt, but with us on the line, we've got the burner himself, not Michael Byrne, but Scott Burnsworth. Scott, how's it going? I'm doing great. I'm just here on a Thanksgiving day, uh, ready to eat some food with my family and uh, have a little fun, watch some football. Beautiful, watching some football, and I am thankful uh, for you to have given been given me uh, some time to uh, kind of go over your, your career a little bit and uh, discuss uh, the happenings of uh, of a very storied career, a legendary career, as they say. Uh, as uh, we were able to meet uh, only hours after you were recognized by the uh, Legends and Heroes at Anaheim two at the beginning of this year, two thousand and fifteen. And uh, first of all, congratulations on that. Um, and um, how are things? Uh, uh, that was that was a great experience. You know, I, I feel humbled by that. You know, I never, I never really, I didn't win a lot of races, but you know, I was always there with the best, you know, in, in the world, and um, it was a great time. You know, riding Supercross in in that era, and uh, I felt lucky to do so, and um, I was really honored when they gave me that award. Absolutely, and be able to uh, walk out on stage in front of uh, uh, a good uh, maybe 50,000 people, uh, who a lot of which still remember uh, the days of your career, where you're uh, twisting the throttle, uh, just as you do to as well t- today. Um, Got to be a great feeling to see that uh, the fans still recognize the name, and uh, just uh, a moment, a lo- uh, an extra moment in the sun for you. Yeah, you know I. Like I said, I, I grew up in, the, I think, the heyday of uh, motocross and supercross with, you know, the best guys in the world. I mean, you know, on the actual factory bikes and, um, you know, I didn't quite end up how I wanted to be, but I had a great time and, uh, you know, I, I'm i still racing today. I race vintage racing and I really love doing that. I, I stopped racing um pro and then i you know i probably didn't ride for maybe seven years after that because i was just i was done i was over it i was you know i i started working and you know going on to my next phase of my life and um so i I got back into vintage racing um kind of uh rekindled the love for the sport and uh there's just a great a bunch of guys that that we ride with. I mean, you know, it's older guys on older bikes and on, on safe tracks and it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Uh, the usual suspects like, uh, Sean Culp and, uh, and Sean Kalos, uh, those guys, uh, twisting the throttle with you, uh, trying to keep up to that, uh, that OSA that, uh, uh, my good friend, uh, Dan Greery, uh, uh, says, uh, you like the sandbag on that thing a little bit. Yeah, I'm lucky that uh, my, my good friend Keith Linus, he has a, a good stable of OSA and OSA parts, yeah. and um, he's, he's built a great bike. It's 
is probably one of the best bikes uh, for that class, and it's extremely fast. And uh, you know, it, it's only got I think six inches of travel on the front and four in the rear. But um, you know, on the right track, it's it's super fun. Well, that thing gets the power to the ground. Uh, I did do some uh, some googling on you, and uh, some YouTube videos popped up of uh, you doing some starts at the uh, at the famed Glen Helen Raceway, where uh, there's one review camera where uh, the gate drops, and uh, you see the rest of the field kind of just disappear behind you. Yeah, like I said, that thing's got for for being a 1974 model. I mean, the thing runs incredible, and. Uh, you know, we we have a lot of fun putting some different cameras on it on the front and the back and just mess around with it, you know. And uh yeah, I like the the back view of camera. It shows the Bruce and the smoke and uh hopefully the guys in the back of you. Absolutely. Now uh, tell me tell me a little bit about uh the Barstow featuring former MX racer uh Scott Burnworth, uh, they they made a little uh, video of you. You're you're rocking the old school pants. You got the socks over top of the boots, open faced helmet, the whole bit. But the entire kit is on point, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this video that was put together by Ride 100. Um, how fun was was that shoot? And uh, how did you get that front end to stay stay up as as much as you do? You think you seem to we- catwalk. Uh, that Osa better than I catwalk my 125 two-stroke. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, there actually is a pretty uh, good story behind that, and uh, kind of a painful story. Go for it. Um, you know, the the video was put on by uh, built by 100, percent and with this to launching their new brand Barstow, which is like a kind of a retro themed goggle and. And uh, now they got other products too, and they wanted to make a really cool kind of retro video. Um, and they've been helping me out for a while, so and they, it was a perfect match. So we went out to um, um, out in the desert and um, by uh, one of the tracks up north, um, out kind of east. And uh, it was a pretty hot day and hot and dusty, and uh, we had a little crew out there and. Um, we actually had Mike Sleater. He was on a, a KTM with a, uh, a GoPro mounted on the back of his fender. And we were doing, I was following him and he was kind of filming me as I was going up and down this road. And then, um, so I, I was, I was doing a wheelie on one, at one point and there was kind of a ravine washed out from the, uh, uh on the side of the road. And I was kind of concentrating on doing a wheelie, and it part of it kind of went into the road, and I didn't really see it because I was I was kind of up in the air, and Sleater was in front of me, and my front wheel, I went to put it down, and I hit I hit a little hole, and the next thing I know, I just went face first into the ravine over the bars. You kind of see it in the video a little yeah, bit. Yeah, they showed like just a half you know, a clip I, of it. I, I was wondering if you had done yeah, I got a. Luckily, I came out of it pretty good. I didn't break anything, but you know that was kind of the first part of the video. So I was like, "Oh man, the bike's all twisted up. I'm kind of hurting." And so we still had another, you know, at least an hour to go. So I got back in the bike, straightened it all up, and rode for about another hour. Kind of my my wrist and my hand was pretty messed up, and had some bruises on my shoulder, but. Uh, 
yeah, it turned out pretty good. If you if you notice in the video, kind of in some places the the bars are a little twisted, and but I made it work, so it all turned out good. I was stoked. No doubt, uh, styling and profiling on that number eight. I uh, believe that was uh, your uh, the highest national number that uh, you had um, you had achieved in your career. Yeah, that's right. That's kind of why I wear it because that's you know my best number I ever achieved, and uh, so I kind of kept that and it stuck. So I use it on my all my bikes now, and and uh, works out pretty good. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how we got to that number eight uh, in just a few moments. But um, before we get there, where did this all start for you? Uh, at some point, um, most motocross racers, young and old, have a story of, uh, about how their dad or a parent uh, got them a bike and uh, springboarded themselves into a lifelong obsession with the sport that drains not only our hearts but our bank accounts. How did all of this start for you? Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, my dad was a stock car driver, you know, kind of a racer guy, you know, back in the, you know, the late 60s and that. And uh, he wasn't really into motorcycling himself, but somehow we got connected with, you know, some some bikes. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of our friends, you know, used to go to the desert, you know, and they have bikes, you know, trail bikes and all that. And and uh, we ended up getting these two trail CT70s, and, you know, we'd go out to, we'd go camping, and, you know, we'd ride around in a circle, and I was, like, completely terrified, you know. We had, like, no helmet, no gear, you know, um, just doing circles, and, you know, eventually I moved up to uh, SL70, and we took all the lights off of it, and, you know, uh, somehow I I got into racing, I... I, um, you know, we got the bike all hopped up, uh, went out to a local race here in San Diego, kind of east of where I live now. And it was more of like a hair scramble because it wasn't, you know, a laid out motocross track or anything like that. It was more like a, you know, kind of off-road, you know, uh, thing. And, uh, so I did that. That was my first race and I think I got hooked then and my dad got hooked and, you know, we we raced for a long, long time, um, you know, in the amateurs and then, um, until I went to pro, that's kind of how we got started. Right. So you're down in basically the Mecca of motocross, just as this is really starting to turn the corner of, uh, becoming, uh, a sport with a lot of eyes on it. And, uh, the bikes are changing year to year to year. Like if you look at a 1975, uh, motocross bike compared to a 1979 motocross bike, only four years different. They're almost complete. They're like completely different altogether. Uh, Yamaha had already started coming up with their mono shock, uh, and, and things are moving really rapidly. How, what was it like living down in the hotbed of this emerging sport as uh, things are moving together quickly? Uh, it almost gets to the point where if you had last year's equipment, you're not making it, man. Yeah, exactly. Those were pretty good days because, you know, I think it was a lot more uh, beneficial for the aftermarket companies then because, you know, there's all these different stuff you could try on your bike. You had, you know, tons of suspension and swing arms and, you know, you could change your, you know, your forks if you want to. I mean, because stuff didn't, you know, work as good as it did today. So everyone was looking for an, an advantage and, that was like, you know, the late, you know, like you said, the late 
70s, you know, was moving from twin shocks to, to single shocks and, you know, different systems. No one really knew, like, what system was the best, so each manufacturer had their own, you know, system they thought was the best, and uh, it was pretty cool growing up in that. I mean, good and bad, you know, the, some of the suspension was didn't work so well, and uh, they, you know, it some of it got it banded and, you know, switched pretty quickly into something else. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting though in those days. For sure. In, in a time where, uh, if you didn't go out and get yourself a Fox air shock, uh, which is of course something that is almost taboo now to go to an air shock, uh, back then, if you didn't have the Fox air shock, you're not competing, man. Exactly. I mean, those things were so trick. I, I always, I, I don't think I, I'm not sure if I ever used those, but, uh, um, actually, I did. I think on my one of my late '70s RMs, I had the Fox shocks on there, and you know, obviously that was the thing to have back in the day. No matter if they worked well or not, they they did work pretty well as far as bottoming and whatnot. But they were pretty tricky as far as the pressure mm-hmm. to get it to work on, uh, you know, uh, light bumps, and then work when it was bottoming out also. So it was kind of a fine line, you know, what you wanted. So um, th- this is a, a completely different landscape as it is today. Now you've got your Milestones, your Paris, you've got Glen Helen, you've got uh, Star West, you have uh, Paula, Elsinore, all of these tracks uh, that are at your beck and call. Uh, what is the landscape like for riding uh, in in the uh, the mid to late 70s? Where did you cut your teeth on some of these tracks and uh, who is out there with you? Yeah, we were pretty lucky down here in SoCal where we are, you know, it was the the vaulted uh El Cajon zone. Yes. Um and a lot of good guys came out of here and uh there was a lot of good riding back then. It wasn't like uh public tracks or anything that only you could go to saddleback or um, you know, we down here we didn't have many of those tracks like that. So we'd go out to a place called Palm Avenue, which is down south. It was near the old JT Racing. And, um, you know, there were several tracks right around here in El Cajon. And, you know, there was many, like, homemade tracks out in the out in the sticks that, that a lot of the guys used. And um, every guy kind of had their own place they wanted to go. And not not a lot of the guys rode together because, you know, they, they want – an advantage over the other guy and so they, it was pretty secretive you see you know rick at this one track one day and brock at this one track one day or something like that and uh you know so we we didn't run into each other that much um but it was pretty cool there was there was lots of good riding down here for sure, like uh, you might not have uh, been pitted next to each other at the local practice track, which uh, were almost uh, non-existent, but where you would see each other is uh, multiple times, almost every single week, lining up uh, at these proving grounds, which would turn out to uh, basically uh, develop countless numbers of, of professionals, and uh, and that would be the uh, the, the local series. Uh, what was it like lining up against uh, basically uh, like not only yourself but a bunch of other uh, motocross legends? that would duke it out uh, on a week-to-week basis if if not multi- multiple times each week yeah it was pretty cool like i said growing up you know in that era um you know down here we had brock and rick and marty smith and uh you know and those guys and uh you know 
every now we we'd fly out to the races together some sometimes and you know we all we're all pretty good friends but when you're racing tight against each other you know you you're not you're not like buddy buddy with everybody yeah. so um but it was like really nice to growing up in that area with the bikes and having you know being able to ride the actual factory bikes and um you know just competing in supercross and motocross and the funny thing was like when we were racing supercross now all the guys have custom tracks they you know on their own land i mean we were we didn't even practice on supercross tracks you know for the most part yeah. it was like you just go out and ride you know on uh you know a, a, a motocross track with with you know supercross jumps and you tried to you know emulate as much as you can but you know we it, it just wasn't there to make the cuts and tracks for everybody, which would have been cool. Absolutely. Uh, those guys definitely have uh, a bit of a competitive advantage as far as uh, the preparation side of things go. Um, and uh, and we're going to get a little bit more into uh, your professional career uh, right after these messages from Bill's Pipes, W Wheels, and uh, Just One Helmets. We'll be right back. Hey, this is George Stacey, and we're going to commercial. We'll be right back. If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short, and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You too can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Albertson wears, and many others. The F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable, sweat-absorbing liner, and generous eye port design to accommodate any goggle choice are just a few. And did I mention how super trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with Oats and Bran. Oats and Bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey kids, start out every morning with a fat bowl. When it comes to helmets, there is just one. The helmet brand that is. Just One Helmets is tailor-made for motocross and street bike riding, and now available in North America. Who chooses just one? Well, for starters, Tim Geiser, winner of the Italian round in MX2, David Philipparts, Vicky Golden, Trevor Reese, as well as David Pulley. And you know what? So do I. I choose Just One Helmets because they're simply the safest, lightest, and most comfortable lid available. Want to know more about Just One Helmets? Check them out on the web at www.justonehelmets.com. Find out about the J12 the J32, and all of the colorways that are absolutely blow your socks off. So guys, please head over to www.justonehelmets.com today. Go check them out. You won't be disappointed. 
hand and turn them still. So what that means is it can move much faster. 2014 X Brand Goggles is back and better than ever. From the Scatter X, Volcano, and Phantom Goggle, X Brand has the product to make you stand out on race day. The quality of X Brand products is second to none. Great lenses, incredible frame, and a strap that doesn't wear out. Great tear offs, zip off systems, nose guard, and more. Check out eksbrand.com for all of the accessories and pricing. WUSA is your one-stop shop for quality wheel sets in America. All of the best components built for the toughest conditions. Hit up WUSA.com, that's D-U-B-Y-A-U-S-A.com right now and check out the custom wheel builder selection. Pick your rims, pick your hubs, pick your spokes, even pick your nipples and see what it's going to look like on your butt. On the website, you'll drool over components like XL and DID rims, Talon and Kite aluminum hubs, Galfer and Brembo brakes, and spokes that take a licking and keep on ticking. The same wheels that you buy are built by the same guys who are building wheels for Ryan Dungey, Jeremy Martin, Chad Reed, and the entire Geico Honda team. And I kid you not, they are not told whose wheels are whose, they just build amazing product. And I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did and head to WBYAUSA.com today. WUSA, all things wheels. What's up, guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike, or just maintenance. He's got the tools and know-how to make sure that your bike is ready on race day or practice. Roy Borden has strength in years of experience and the best technology and best tools at his disposal. Whether you're getting your forks redone, seals, or a full, full-blown rebuild on your forks or, or shock, call up Roy Borden today at 204-633-2722. Bill's Pipes, the home of legendary performance. Since 1974, Bill's Pipes has been providing motocross and off-road riders the performance they need. Two-stroke or four-stroke, Bill's Pipes has the exhaust system for you. In recent years, we've seen a resurgence of the Bill's Pipes brand, and that's great news. And that's great news for motocross racers everywhere. For four strokes, Bill's Pipes brings the RE13 to dominate the fight on any brand. For you two-stroke guys, the MX2 Bill's Pipes exhaust system is the right one for the job and comes in works, nickel, and the all-new cone-look finish that'll turn heads all day long. Head to Bill'sPipes.com right now and get the same pipe used by Billy Lidinovich, Vicky Golden, JMR Suzuki team, Jesse Pierce, Nico Izzy, and David Cole. Bill's Pipes is craftsmanship at its finest. So go with Bill's Pipes and never settle.
And we're back. Big MX Radio Podcast Show still on the line with Scott Burnworth. Scott, um, 1978 wraps up for you. I believe you're you're on Suzuki's then, uh, and and that's what you carry with you into uh, the uh, the pro ranks in August of '79. You're on the RMs. Uh, what were those bikes like, and uh, where did you develop a relationship with Suzuki to carry that into the pro ranks? Well, when I was riding mini bikes, I, I, I got a ride with uh, R&D Suzuki, and they were kind of like the satellite team for for the Suzuki factory. Yeah. Um, so I grew up, you know, through the mini ranks, just like they do now. And, um, you know, when I got done racing the minis, I, I started racing, the you know, the local uh, CMC races and whatnot and Golden State and all the races I could do around here. And like I said, in those days, it was like a normal CMC race was like, you know, they'd have 30 pros in each class, 125, 250, and 500. And uh, a lot of those top guys were, you know, factory guys that, that wanted to practice and just be out there and get some time in. So, I mean, there was no better experience than that for myself. Um, so I started racing that, had some success, and, uh, you know, I caught the eye of Suzuki, and um, I uh, I went on the Nationals um, and did that uh, part of the Nationals that year, and um, uh, I ended up getting one of the Suzuki factory bikes later in the year, because one of the guys got hurt, um, Pat Jacobson, I don't know if you remember him, but... Um, I think he got hurt in like his first race on that factory bike, and that you know it's really tragic. And uh, but it ended up by uh, I ended up with uh, riding his bike, which is just incredible. It's, it was you know all handmade. I mean, I was just a bike you would just drool over. Titanium everywhere. The thing, I think it weighed like one you know, right near 180 or somewhere around there. So it was just, the thing was lighter and, and, you know, handmade, sand cast, everything. And so I was just like in awe to ride that thing. How was it to find parts for these things? Like a lot of these bikes were one-off bikes. Like how available were the, uh, the replacement parts and, uh, and, and who was replacing those parts for you? Who was doing the work on your bikes at that point? Well, actually, at that point, it was all pretty much Suzuki factory stuff. Okay. They they pitted me in with uh, the factory guys, and, you know, they pretty much have endless parts for those bikes. Um, uh, you know, they, they have a dedicated uh, parts truck that goes through every race, and so they got spares, you know, for everything. Wow, that's uh, as a young rider, uh, I imagine you're uh, probably uh, just just north of uh, 16, 17 years old at this point. Uh, with those types of parts at your beck and call, racing the nationals uh, in amongst over uh, ten California riders inside the top twenty almost every single weekend, and uh, you yourself coming in seventeenth uh, overall at your first. R- race at uh, Rio Bravo MX Park. Uh, what do you remember about your, your first days uh, racing that uh, that bike uh, at the uh, the National Series? Yeah, actually that, you know, when I first started that year, early in the season, I was on a production bike. Okay. And, uh, you know, I had the help from R&D Racing out of uh, SoCal. And um, 
it was pretty tough. I have to say that, you know, the, the motos were 40 plus two back then, which is, you know, it's, it's grueling. I mean, and I was a kid coming out of Southern California, you know, we didn't have too many 40 plus races out here. All they did, they did have some longer ones, you know, on Saturday at Saddleback and, and whatnot. But, and then having to go back to Rio Bravo, I don't remember exactly what the temperature was, but it was like high, you know, maybe in the 90s with a lot of humidity. So when you're doing 40 plus two, that was like a whole new thing for me. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was uh, an eye opener there. And just to finish well and and uh, do well there, I uh, I felt pretty good about it. You know, going forward, I knew what I had to do. So um started working on my weak points and uh, went from there. For sure. And, of course, this is the time before 125 Supercross. 125 Supercross doesn't come in until uh, almost later on in the 1980s. Uh, so um, what, what were the, the, the winters like for you up until uh, you started racing 250 Supercross in 81? Uh, what did you busy yourself with? Obviously, uh, the Golden State Series is around, as well as uh, it was common for a lot of guys to go down to, uh, to Florida to race. Uh, what did you uh, fill your schedule with? Yeah, that was mainly it. I mean, it was a lot of training in the wintertime and, and then getting out to those CMC Golden State races because those were like the big races to prep for, um, you know, the, the Nationals and whatnot. And um, that was obviously before Supercross. And then, uh, you know, I never got to race that 125 Supercross. And actually in 81, I got stuck uh, um that was my first year in Supercross and you get stuck right in the main with, you know, the best guys in the world. And you're yeah. just like, you're at odd just, just to see who these guys are. You yeah. Know, you're be, asking for autographs them. before the main. Yeah, exactly. Can I have your autograph after the moto kind of thing? And it's like, you know, now I have to race against all these guys. It's just like, I was in such an awe. I was just stoked to be there. For sure. Now, uh, before, before we get all the way into Supercross, let's dial it back to, uh, Series uh, Series Point International Raceway, June 29th, 1980. Your best finish up until this moment was a 13th at Southwick one week prior to this, or two weeks prior to this particular race. Uh, but uh, you pull a fourth out of your, out of your hat. Um, was, this, uh, was this particular track, well, it's, it's in Sonoma, uh, Sonoma, California, which I assume is kind of a, almost a hometown track for you, or at least uh, a track that you had some laps on. But uh, what was the secret about that day and how you guys ended up putting uh, six California riders up inside the top ten? Yeah, you know, um, that was funny because that, that track is uh, kind of a Euro-looking uh, track. It's it's really wide and, you know, it's got some hills and it mm-hmm. com- kind of resembles uh Unadilla in a way, but it was a little bit harder terrain, which was suited me a lot better being from SoCal. Um, I wasn't much of a sand guy, as you can tell by my uh, Southwick results. Um, but as far as the hard pack, I I really liked that, and uh, you know that was when I obviously when I started riding that works bike, and you know when you're on that bike and you have a lot more confidence, and you get out there and like this is where I should be, you know, up, you know, in the top 10, you know, 
So that's kind of what happened. I, I uh, got a lot of experience, uh, more experience on a works bike and started doing better. And um, that was kind of the story on that time. For sure. Now, at this point, of course, uh, you're on the full factory team with the guy, uh, the likes of uh, Mark Barnett. And uh, I would be remiss to not ask you uh, about some stories about the, the bomber himself, uh, known for his toughness, known for his regimented uh, training. And uh, did you ever, uh, um, like, obviously, this is box fan days. You're not as connected as you are now as, as teammates because they do a lot of riding together, do a lot of testing together. But uh, how much experience and how much time did you spend with the bomber, and uh, what did you pick up from him? Because at the time, uh, he's kind of uh, he was the guy on two wheels. Well, actually, technically, uh, that 1980, I wasn't a uh, factory rider. Okay. I was more of an amateur way. rider, and they put me in right. uh, with with the factory guys, and um, so I wasn't that. Uh, actual factory rider then I just I had some works parts and you know help from them and you know pretty much everything else except for a salary and um that's a major piece there yeah. uh, Scott yeah I got I got to I got to ride with Schultz and you know Daniel Laporte was still riding then and you know he was a really good guy to talk to and you know he'd always help me out and and obviously uh Barnett. I mean, that guy, like you said, he's an animal. You know, I on a few occasions, I you know, I'd get to ride with him and whatnot. That was, and coming up later in my career, I got to spend some time back at his farm when we were testing. So, yeah, the guy was just incredible. I mean, really intimidating. So as far as uh, this particular day, if you do remember uh, at Sears Point, were you uh, battling more with uh, Myerskoff for third or were you running away from Mike Brown in fifth? You know, I don't remember. It's hard for me to remember specifics of that day, but, uh, you know, I always, uh, I was always a good starter, uh, which kind of, you know, I think it hurt me in, in the long run maybe um, because I, you know, I was always up there in the front and I would have to, you know, fight to keep up there rather than, you know, when you start at the back, you're passing the slower riders. You're eventually going up, up, up. And uh, it's a little bit harder when you're always there at the front trying to uh, fend off like the fastest guys around. Fair enough. Well, I, I would uh, I would say probably that uh, Mike LaRocco might have uh, asked for just a eensy weensy bit of your starting skill because uh, I feel like he may have <laughs> yeah. may have been able to uh, win a few races because uh, as I've gone back to watch super, a few of those supercrosses and motocross races from back in the day, there seems to be one common theme throughout the '90s that uh, there's death taxes and bad starts from uh, Mike LaRocco. So uh, uh, bad yeah. start, good starts are, are, are not too too much of a hindrance, but I do understand that whole. Uh, once you get up there with the big boys, uh, they like to uh, they like to mix it up. Exactly. I mean, you know, like yeah, like I said, growing up, I was always a good starter, so uh, which worked out in certain times, and uh, others others not. So uh, yeah, that's the way it goes. For sure, and I I know you you'd mentioned that uh, like growing up, you're you're a great starter, and and that's a huge. Uh, con- contributor to uh, to amateur success and uh, I feel that uh, the, the gate drops or the number of gate drops that you guys would have gotten as amateurs uh, in throughout the uh, the 70s and early 80s 
um, far exceeds how much kids are actually lining up on race day to uh, in, in this in this day. Um, what do you have to say about that? Like I know that like we talked about a little bit before we uh, hit record on this. Um, these kids seem to do a lot more practicing and training than they do actually racing. Uh, do you feel like that's a good thing as far as uh, race pace goes? Well, you know, like I said back in the back in the day, everybody rode, you know, local races, you know, I mean, if you were from the East Coast, you'd go to uh, Florida for the Florida series. I mean, if you weren't racing uh, one of those major uh, series, you kind of felt like you were missing out and you weren't going to be on the pace, you know, all your other um, competitors are out there, you know, at the races and getting their time in on their bikes, testing, so... It was like if you didn't weren't there, you you felt like you weren't gonna you know be on point. So that's what everyone did, and it's definitely changed till now. I don't really see how guys do it because to be in a race pace and uh, you know a fast practice mode, it's just it's just not the same to me. Right, exactly. The uh, trying to replicate race pace on practice day for me is nearly impossible, which is always what kind of makes race day a little bit uh, more more of a risk it side of kind of uh, proposition. Whereas, like you could try and push yourself on practice day, but when the gate drops and there's a real race happening, you'll always be able to find that. Uh, extra half a second here or like hit that corner just a little bit faster because it, it now means something. Um, so uh, like like from a safety standpoint, I would almost say that uh, racing more often is uh, is in a way safer because you learn to adapt your speed to, to race pace. Whereas if you go practice all the time and then you all of a sudden have to wick it up for, for, uh, for race pace, uh, you put yourself at greater risk. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, when you're out there banging bars and with uh, 30 guys instead of, you know, maybe you got two guys out there, it's a lot different. Yeah, and, more space. You know, you can, in the races, you can simulate, you know, the actual, you know, race and do everything you need to do. And um, so I definitely think that racing helps you uh, on your regular racing. Plus, exactly. Well, you had the the benefit of uh, of lining up at your local races, which a lot of guys who you would then uh, end up racing with at the professional level, you can kind of see uh, what they're bringing to the table. Because uh, I'd say the the last thing I'd want is to be uh, training all year uh, to go to Loretta's and then go to Loretta's and find out that uh, my pace is way off. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, like I said down here and at the CMC races there, you know, you have, you know, uh, shoot, I mean, you know, Brock Glover, you know, Marty Smith and, you know, Ron Machine and Rick Johnson, you know, I mean, these are the guys you're going to be racing against, you know, in a few weeks at, you know, at Hangtown or whatever. And, you know, if you're on their pace then you're, you're looking pretty good. So it's a good measuring stick for sure. I agree. Now, uh, and uh, all of that racing culminated to you achieving, um, I guess, uh, any young man's dream of becoming the rookie of the year for uh, AMA uh, Motocross and Supercross. You you won that, and uh, somebody took notice, and that would be uh, the uh, the team manager over at Yamaha, and uh, they threw you a contract, and uh, you switched from yellow to well, yellow again. Um, 
which, uh, in my opinion, Yamahas are yellow. They should always be yellow. Uh, but uh, you switch from one yellow machine to the other, 1981, and uh, it saw not only um, a spike in uh, in your own results, but uh, kind of an, a, a brand new uh, a brand new Scott. Yeah, that that was technically my first factory ride um, because, like I said, the Suzuki deal was kind of an amateur kind of kind of pro, you know. Uh, to get me introduced to the racing. And uh, so in 1981, you know, Suzuki was pretty stacked with a lot of fast guys. And for some reason, Yamaha needed a 125 rider. And, um, you know, I was good friends with Brock at that time. And um, I'd like to say that he helped me a lot kind of, you know, get in there. Yeah, uh, what a team! Because like. he was, he was, he was one of the best guys, and and um, you know they, I, it was funny. I can still remember. I I went up there, no agent or nothing. It was like back then, you just kind of showed up and you know did your own negotiations, which is probably not the best thing to do for me. <laughs> and um, I met Kenny Clark that day, with, who was the manager, and and uh, he said, I always remember because he's all. Man, you know, you were like the first guy that like stayed on the same lap as, as Barnett and all these guys. So they were like really impressed by that. And then uh, I said, yeah, you know, I had I had some good help. I had some good bikes. And uh, so they offered me a contract for 1981 uh, on a on a trick, you know, new Yamaha. And, and back then it was just like those things were works of art, you know. And uh, for sure. It was just anyone's dream come true, and you know I didn't care about you know how much money it was or anything. I was I was going to be on the the same team as Mike Bell and Brock Glover and, and Bob Hanna. I was like, I was I was crazy. I you know that was just insane. You know any That's kid's wild. dream. Yeah, like these so, are. Yeah, I was over the top. Hurricane Hannah, Too Tall Mike Bell, and uh, the Golden Boy. Like you're you're mixed in with those guys. Uh, like, and, and you're the burner on the 125 and, uh, it's, 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 it's a great mix of guys and you guys really did dominate, uh, and have some great results that year. How were the bikes? Um, the bike was, you know, it was decent. Uh, that was the year they had the radiator up on the, on the handlebars. Yes. Uh, actually on the, on the, yeah, on the front. And, um, you know, as much as anyone didn't like it and thought, you know, that's kind of weird, you know, it's heavy, whatever it makes it heavy in the front. And it didn't work too bad, you know? Um, but I think compared to like what the Suzuki were that, that in that period, I think we were, you know, I, I think at one time we were like, you know, we we're like 15, 20 pounds heavier, you know, so our bike was pretty heavy back then. It ran pretty good. Um, and it worked. The suspension was decent. We had a lot of support, you know, like I said, you know, Yamaha had a lot of resources and, um, you know, you get, you know, tips from Brock and, and the other guys on, you know, what to do and get the bike working. So it was, it was a decent bike. For sure. And, and you're, you're enjoying it. You're having uh kind of the time of your life flying all over the country, uh, doing what you love to do. Um, 
later on that year, uh, they, they throw you on the, the 250 for, for Supercross. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, heading into Los Angeles, uh, your first 250 race as a professional. Um, and uh, not a bad showing for you whatsoever. It like, make, makes the main. And then uh, not, not only just a couple weeks later, you end up uh, in, the, in the main again. Uh, and even a top 10 finish uh, in November in, in San Diego. Yeah, like I said, I mean, back then it was like we didn't have the tra- transition period like they do today to go to the 250s and then on to the the big class, and um, we got thrown right in the fire. So, you know, you got to, you know, maybe, I don't know how many other factory bikes and riders that are, they're, you know, pretty much filling the main. Mm-hmm. And um, just to make it in the main was, was a was a feat and um you know it, it was tough for sure um you know to get in the top 10 you were you had to be you know on your game so um it was a tough period you know supercross wasn't r- really my thing i was probably better outdoors and um but i really enjoyed it i I enjoyed being on the yamaha team and, and being able to go to all those stadiums you know through that the 80s era um that was pretty cool for sure and uh so so 2000 or uh, 1982 rolls around still with yamahas uh on uh, not only one 250 250 supercross but 250 outdoors as well and uh, you kind of come out with on a bang as far as uh, the motocross side goes uh you show up to uh, hangtown and saddleback are the first two races of the outdoor series and um like nothing uh, Scott Burnworth uh, rattles off a couple of podiums. Um, kind of, well, Hangtown, not really in your backyard. There's still California, but that's NorCal. Um, what right. was it like uh, racing those two events? Uh, kind of, I imagine, tracks that you had uh, time on uh, both sides. Yeah, that definitely helped, uh, you know, coming out, you know, having more experience um, coming into 82 and, you know, um, being able to ride local tracks and that definitely helped me out, you know, as far as saddleback and in those races, uh, you know, Hangtown was, you know, it was similar to, to SoCal and always seemed to do pretty good there. Cause in the CMC days, um, we had a lot of races up there. So I had a lot of experience on that, the Prairie city track, um, there in Hangtown. Oh yes. Uh, it was so called Prairie some, city back then. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so that was a decent year for me, you know, I, you know, up and down in Supercross, but, uh, uh, overall, uh, decent season. I mean, obviously I'd like to do a lot better, but that's the way it went. It is the way it went. And, uh, so 82, um, and it was one of the things I, I noticed, uh, kind of that jumped off the page as we all, we scroll through, uh, the Racer X, the vault, uh, to check out your results. And, uh, it's always a great, uh, way for anyone who wants to, to look at, uh, some of these, uh, uh, the great accomplishments of your career as well as some of the, uh, like just, just career highlights and, and who play, placed where when, uh, as well as if, if you're listening to this, you could definitely follow along with us as we go through these. And uh, what I noticed in the in '82 and '83, uh, they seemed uh, the Supercross promoters were very big on sending you guys to uh, uh, the, uh, the the NASCAR tracks to 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 do some Supercross racing, uh, Road Atlanta. Uh, Daytona and Talladega, all three used in throughout that time period. Um, 
what were the intricacies of racing those events rather than a, uh, a regular stadium? Yeah, it was obviously a different uh, layout, you know. I mean, uh, the big one that started was Daytona. They've had that race forever, and I think their idea was to open these up to more like the super speedways, you know, get in, inside there. So we went to Talladega, um, like you said, Road Atlanta. That was, I think, that was more a road course. I kind of remember weaving in around the <clears throat> the road course there, which was pretty cool, you know, the red dirt and whatnot, and uh, mm. and always the, those facilities were really nice because it's you know it's made for stock cars and, and car racing. Um, so it was definitely a change of pace from the, you know, the normal inside the stadium, you know. Uh, the thing I miss, you know, today, it was like back then they used to, you know, they, one weekend they might be going up in the stands, uh, you know, another weekend they'll have a over under bridge, uh, here and there. And, you know, they throw some funky stuff in there, which was, was kind of cool. Well, they're trying to bring that back a little bit. Uh, of course, uh, the last two years they've gone up into the stands in Detroit, and uh, 2014, 2015, we saw uh, the uh, the reemergence of the uh, the over under bridge, which I'm always a fan of because it almost seems to add uh, at least five seconds to the lap time, at least. So uh, I like to see those lap times in Supercross. Getting back up to uh, around a minute, uh, the 45-second uh, races uh, or lap times usually turn into a 15-minute race as far as a 20-lapper go, and then a, a 20-lap or a, uh, for the 250 guys, a 15-lap main is uh, is a 10-minute ride out there. So uh, the race is over before it starts. Uh, for you guys, it was it was a little bit different, especially uh, at, at some of these uh, races at the uh, the speedways. Those are long lap times, very grueling, and uh, you're you're one of the guys who would have raced Daytona when it was at its gnarliest when uh, Gary Bailey was designing those tracks. Uh, what do you remember about racing those? I know you're a you're a motocross guy, so kind of kind of fall into your hands a little bit, but uh, seemed like a tough race for you. Yeah, you know Daytona was one of those kind of one off races where. You know, there was a lot of sand there, and, you know, they had a hard time, you know, keeping the jumps, you know, all manicured and, and nice. And, you know, then I remember they one year, I don't remember the year they started putting telephone poles in the jumps so the dirt wouldn't break down. That's right. So basically you have a telephone pole going across, you know, they pack it down with sand, basically. So eventually... All that sand goes away, and, I mean, you have, like, square-edge telephone poles going through whoops and jumps, and and I had a few memorable get-offs there, you know, uh, on the Suzuki and uh, going over the bars, and, like, like in 1984, when I, I pretty much had to ride every single race, you know, to the last chance, and... You know, I crashed, and I, you know, whatever, I I didn't make it to the, the main in that, so I had to go to the next one, so that was a long day for me, but it ended up pretty good. 
it did end up pretty good for you. You had a lot of great success uh, on that Suzuki, and uh, both indoors and out uh, Lakewood, Washougal, uh, and uh, moving into 1983, um, the uh, the number two pops up more than anything else, and uh, that's where we ended up in the motocross series behind none other than uh, the great David Bailey. So as far as that series goes, uh, and we're, like, we're talking about David Bailey being one of the uh, the greatest to sling, sling a leg over a bike, um, got to be a pretty, like that, that year in itself has to stand out for you as uh, a great accomplishment uh, to, uh, like, although you didn't win the championship, to, to be uh, nipping at the heels of a, of a great rider like that, uh, it's got to feel good to look back and, and kind of think about those days fondly. Yeah, that was uh, that year was probably my you know my heyday right there, and um, really proud of what I accomplished that year. Um, the Suzuki was really that was probably one of the best years for my my works bike, and um, it was really fast. You know, handled pretty decent, and um, you know I had a lot of good finishes. You know, got a lot of good starts and and whatnot. You know, some good luck that year. Um, and then obviously racing with David. I mean, you're racing with like the best guy, you know, in the world, pretty much. Um, so smooth and and you know, very hard to beat, but very intelligent. And um, so I, I was I was really lucky to to end up second, and I am proud that I did that. Who else was on the team with you in '83? Uh, because uh, I just quickly looked at the results from this this high point race, and uh, there's you on a Suzuki, and the next one doesn't pop up until 12th place. That's uh, Clint Hardick. So, like, uh, who who was on the team with you? Actually, in '83, you know, uh, I, I don't remember it. Is that when they had a bunch of 125 guys, and then you? Yeah, I know they did have a lot of. Uh, 125 guys. Um, okay. um, I don't recall exactly everybody on the course. I know Barnett was riding for Suzuki then. I'm not sure if he got hurt or whatever. I know uh, he he was riding a 125, um, and then the 250 and Supercross. And because uh, we had the um, we had the bike with the air box where the tank was and the gas tank where the air right, box right, right. was. <laughs> yeah, for Supercross. And, um, yeah, we, you know, we struggled a little bit, you know, with Supercross that year on that bike. Um, but the outdoor bike was, was pretty incredible. I think Barnett ended up using that same bike for the Supercross. Um, and I kind of just stuck with the one with the airbox on top, which worked pretty decent still. Fair enough. Now, that, that's, uh, these are, of course, still works bikes days, um, and uh, you're, you're still de- like you're still based out of California at the time. Was there ever a moment when uh, you had an opportunity to uh, kind of compare your uh, your your works Suzuki with uh, maybe another brand uh, in in complete secrecy of uh, of where uh, maybe Honda didn't know or Yamaha didn't know, just to uh, kind of take take a spin on one of these bikes to see what they're all about. Yeah, not not really. That didn't happen too often back then. So, um, I mean, I'm sure it did happen, but I never got the experience to do that myself. Fair enough. Uh, so, so how how did you like as far as competition wise on the track? Uh, where do you feel like the Suzuki uh, was better than some of the uh, the bikes that you were racing against? And uh, where did you feel like uh, you may have been uh, lacking a little bit? 
Um, actually, as far as power, I mean, the Suzuki was right up there. Um, I, I'd say if there was anything that was lacking was maybe the handling, um, maybe compared to the works Hondas. Um, I never got a chance to ride one of those, obviously, but um, I know they work pretty good. And, you know, the the Suzuki system was pretty good. Uh, I think it was better outdoors than it was in Supercross. Um just the design of the the, the suspension and the, the rear and uh, that whole shock and, and swing arm link system. Well, that's really cool. It, it's uh, like how has how is the uh, the development of these bikes? Like obviously you're doing a lot of testing. Uh, how 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 much does the bike change from where you got it? To uh, to where you what you ended up racing uh, come the time that the gate drop for the nationals you know you guys uh, went with a completely different bike uh, like as far as uh, the geometry of the uh, the airbox and the uh, and the and the gas tank um, how many things are getting switched out week to week as you were developing this bike into something that uh, you could uh, dice it up with uh, the likes of David Bailey on yeah I mean back then it was pretty cool we had a lot of um, different options. Um, to our disposal and um, you know earlier that year we got to go over to Japan to test those those bikes and uh, that was that was really neat you know it was kind of like you know kind of a break in and you know try the bike and see how it works just the basic settings and you know to get it decent and then you know later on we we in uh, the United States we we do testing uh, before that year to, to fine tune all that and, and get it ready for the nationals, which, uh, ended up working out pretty good that year. No kidding. Uh, a, a great summer for you, a great season. Um, how close were you to, uh, to stealing, uh, a, a, an overall win from, from David throughout the year? Uh, forgive me for not being, uh, for not, uh, knowing every single detail about that particular series. I was born, uh, five years later. Um, so, yeah. uh, but uh, as far as uh, dicing it up with uh, with, the, with the would-be champ, uh, did you steal any motos off of him, and, uh, and how close were you to taking it overall? Yeah, you know, I um, I was pretty close. I don't remember the exact points, um, but I did one moto in Gainesville. Uh, I crashed, and, and uh, I, I think I ended up DNFing that, that moto, so I probably lost, you know, 20, 22 points or something like that. I ended up ripping off my fingernail on one of my mm. fing- my my clutch finger, I think it was, and that was super painful. And um, I actually did uh, I won a moto that year at Gainesville. Um, uh, I think it was Keylon actually that was uh, it was me and him that were dicing for the for the win, and um, pretty much the whole moto. So I I ended up winning that moto and. I think that that next photo is when I crashed and tore my finger off, so um, that didn't end up so well. Um, but overall, it's pretty. You know, I was always there. I got a yeah. ton of seconds, which which sucked, and you know, I wish I would have won more. But you know, that's the way it goes, and uh, I was I was happy on the year. Absolutely, uh, like the the Pittsburgh track was that is that Steel City or is that a completely different? Uh, um Pennsylvania track altogether. Uh, with that high point, or I think that was 
was that high point? I'm not sure, but nope. There's there's uh, high point was earlier in the year. Uh, um, Pittsburgh happened uh, right after uh, Redbud that year, right before Foxborough. Oh, okay, that's a Supercross. Sorry. Oh, that's uh, a Supercross. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's a Supercross. I remember going there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah they mixed cool. you guys up yeah. big time. Not only did you guys not have Supercross tracks to to, to to practice on, they're like, oh, every once in a while, we're going to get you to ride a Supercross. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, back then, it was like, one Red week and on you're third. riding Supercross, one, yeah. one week and you're riding uh, Motocross. So I, I think it was pretty cool to mix it up, actually. And uh, no kidding. it'd be cool if they did that today. Um, you know, it, it would be a drastic change from what they do today because it's like, you know, you got Supercross settings, you got outdoor settings, uh, and but back then we you know like I said we'd be out during the week and practice on an um, outdoor track getting ready for a supercross so uh, you had to be versatile between July uh, between the July third nineteen eighty three and July 9th, you went from uh, you went from one tw- you went from uh, outdoors to supercross and then back three weeks later uh, uh, into August uh, you're uh, you're at um, you're, you're racing outdoors again. Absolutely wild. If they did that today, uh, there would be uproar with the riders. Uh, the teams would not be yeah. down for it. And uh, no, I've uh, often uh, like said these these guys are, are catered to way too much. The tail uh, wags the dog uh, as far as this sport goes. Uh, I've uh, like my my most ridiculous uh, idea as far as to shake up uh, motocross would be like you know how they have the have the Joker lane. Yeah. What they should do is they should have a Joker bike. Is is that <laughs> every manufacturer has to build a two-stroke, two three hundred cc completely works bike, and then at riders meeting, everyone in the top ten has to draw straws for who has to ride the Joker bike. <laughs> and today, whoever that was has to learn how to ride two-stroke today. That's it. I I like the idea. I'm a big two-stroke <laughs> fan, and uh, <laughs> I think that'd be interesting. <laughs> For sure, like uh, it, like it's as a completely one-off thing, I think fans would go wild for it, and uh, and I know I would love it. But uh, getting back into this, uh, to, in, uh, to finish off the '83 season, a second overall, and uh, leading into the '84 with that uh, the big number eight emblazoned on the uh, on the Suzuki, you got to be feeling good. And uh, uh, was was there any type of bonus for you for uh, for being top three in the series, or was this the the contract structured only for uh, overall? Yeah, win? basically the. The bonus was, um, you know, I did get a little bonus, but then the major bonus is the next year you get a certain, you know, pay right. for the next year. So that was pretty cool. Nice. And um, and actually, you know, transitioning from 83 to 84, everyone was still on the works bikes. And for some reason, Suzuki decided we're not going to make works bikes this year. I don't know if it was a budgetary thing or, or what. So in 84, we're out there with our Suzuki, you know, production slash, you know, factory bikes, and everyone else is on their full-blown works bikes. So it was... Uh, you, Mark Barnett, and George Harland are frowning on the gate. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they ended up being, you know, those bikes were pretty... We had the motors going pretty good. It was funny because I was watching... a. You know, it was 80, 84 Anaheim, and I don't remember doing that well, but I actually led, like, the first, 
I don't know, five laps of the main, and I was, because that bike was, it was pretty fast, like I said, but as far as suspension, you know, it it needed a little bit to be desired, um, especially compared to what everyone else is riding. Totally. So, you know, we did, we did the best we could, and, uh, you know, the next year, we had work bikes again. <laughs> so, enough said on that one. Back to work by works bikes in '85, and uh, as far as Supercross goes, uh, you, in my opinion, you're a brand new guy. Only uh, three Supercrosses in all of '85 where you're not in the top ten, and those were both 12th place positions. Um, honestly, one of your best years on uh, on Supercross. Yeah, you know, I think I was more consistent that year. Um, um, the the couple years before that, I I had some injuries like broken collarbone i think you know here and there um so it's that's hard to you know finish well when you're you're doing that and uh so 85 i you know we had a decent bike the thing was you know like i said uh, you know the thing ran incredible it was more of if anything needed to be improved it would have been the suspension but um you know we got great starts and you know just tried to be consistent and not crash and whatnot and finish up there what was it about the uh the high point raceway this california kid goes all the way to the other side of the country and every time he goes there he seems to scoop up a top five finish um what was it about the layout what was it about uh, just you and heading out to that track that uh, seemed to be a bit of a magic thing for you uh regardless of how your uh results were anywhere around that event you always seemed to be able to uh, rise to the occasion and uh as far as uh, as i can tell uh i think your worst position there was an eighth so uh pre- pretty damn good for a guy who uh is is not from that part of town yeah like i said i mean i had a uh... A lot of tracks that I tended to do better than others, you know, uh, I think Washugo I did, always did pretty good there, uh, you know, uh, High Point, you know, had some pretty good luck there, and I guess it just comes down to, you know, being comfortable on that track and, you know, having the right dirt and uh, kind of being in your zone, I mean, you know, it's like for me in the sand, that was a struggle. I, I grew up out here in SoCal. There's no sand anywhere around here. And, you know, I just didn't ride a lot of sand in my uh, younger days. And I was, you know, like a fish out of water pretty much. It's like when you see the guys from uh, the Netherlands come over here and, you know, ride SoCal, they're just, you know, it's like fish out things. of water pretty much. Yeah. And, uh, so that was the deal on that. Fair enough. Now, uh, what was the what was the plan about uh, in in '86 with uh, sending you back down to the 125 class to mix it up with Diamond uh, in the uh, in the 125 class? Um, kind of a hadn't hadn't been riding the little bike in, in quite some time, and uh, you find yourself back down there mixing it up with the young kids. Uh, Kehoe's down there, I guess. Uh, George Harland is also there. Um, What's what was the story with uh, everyone's on 125s that year? Well, um, you know, after '85, I uh, I was talking to different uh, manufacturers, and like I said, I've always been you know pretty close friend with Brock, and uh, you know, obviously he has a good tie-in with Yamaha, and <clears throat> um, and they were looking to add a, another 125 rider that year, 
Um, so I started talking to them and, you know, Brock kind of helped me out a bit up there. And, um, I ended up getting a ride with Yamaha for 86 and, uh, you know, trying to do that 125 class. And, um, that was the idea. I mean, we had to, we actually had a few Yamaha guys that year, um, like Bader and, and the hoop. And, um, there was, yeah, there was some factory, uh, Bowen, I think Bowen was on the team. Yeah. Bowen. And, um, yeah, it didn't go as well as expected and what we had hoped for. I mean, we had a lot of struggles with the bike that year, just suspension and, uh, down on power and seemed like we were always struggling to just get it competitive and, um, things didn't go as planned as I'd like, as I'd like. Fair enough, but you did look good in the uh, the black and red Hallman riding gear, uh, especially when yeah. you uh, came out to uh, a pretty damn good start, Anaheim, uh, nineteen eighty six. You don't remember anything about that particular night, do you? Oh, nothing. No, I just totally blur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out to no, a good a start, fact, and uh, that, here comes that is, that is probably like one of the most well-known things I've, I've known for and people recognize me. It's, you know, I'll be at a supercross or something like that. And they'll say, I remember you in 86 and you and Johnson and Bailey and, and all this stuff along. Well, yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> so uh, I get, I get uh, reminded of that quite a bit. Fair enough. But the, the riding gear looked good, man. Uh, the, the, the red and black motif, uh, definitely was eye catching. And, uh, yeah, like the, the Anaheim 86, RJ comes in, uh, like a bat out of hell and, uh, puts you on the ground. Yeah. You know, I was actually having a pretty good day, uh, that, that day and, and, uh, was riding good, had the bike working pretty good. And I, I ended up winning my heat race and, uh, uh, feeling good going into the main and, uh, I, I didn't get the whole shot right off the gate. Uh, I, I think I actually thought that Holly got the, the, the whole shot. So I, I ended up in the next corner, I ended up passing them and getting into the lead. And, uh, uh, I think it was the second corner, uh, RJ came in super hot and uh, I was scoring it up because there was like a triple right there mm-hmm. and I was going to try to jump it. So I cut in and he was going way too fast and pretty much cleaned out my front wheel and uh, had my face stuck in the dirt for about half a lap. At first, did you think that it was uh, Jim Holly that had uh, had cleaned your clock because I uh, wouldn't have put a pass him at the time? Yeah, no, yeah, I actually had a lot of, not not run-ins with Holly, but, you know, we, we raced mini bikes together, and we grew up pretty much in the same era, riding all the same races, and, um, yeah, he was definitely a bulldog. Uh, but at Anaheim, I, I wasn't really sure what happened. It was happened so fast. Uh, you know, I got the whole shot, and um, uh, and then I was just cleaned out. I, I had my face in the dirt. I'm, I'm, I'm getting up going, like, where am I? And... Uh, so I was about a half a lap back, and I just kind of, you know, I was, I was so far back, it was it was hard to really get going. So um, I decided I'd just help uh, David Bailey out a little bit. <laughs> 
No, no, no that's, uh, it's, uh, it's all good gamesmanship at that point, and uh, um, yeah, definitely a little bit of vindication on, on your on your side. Um, of course, uh, the motocross vault only uh, gives me info on uh, races you did in uh, in in the United States, and I do know that uh, Jim Hawley came up here to race up in Canada quite a bit, including uh, an arena cross here in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, prior to going over to Barcelona, um, what what types of races were you hitting outside of uh, of North America? Um, the ones that I can remember are like Bercy, um, doing that, uh, Genoa, Italy, uh, did one Antwerp, Belgium, um, I didn't, I actually don't think I've ever been to Canada to do a race and, um, you. you know, which I, I kind of wish I could have, I, you know, I hear a lot of good stories, like, you know, the rollerball and all that, you know, and I knew Ross from down here and he was riding the, the nationals and, you know, they had the, whatever the Molson, uh, supercross. And so I'd, I'd really like to come up there. Did you ever get uh, rollerball? Um, no, I don't think I ever did get rollerballed. You know, I did race with rollerball a lot. And, uh, cause he was actually riding a Suzuki back then too. So uh, oh, yes. he was always kind of around the, you know, our, our area. And, uh, he was, a, he was a cool guy. The guy's guy was tough as nails. 42 Canadian national championships. Can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. That's, that's Every, crazy. There's literally, if you look at the record books for the CMRC, or at that time it would have been the CMA, it's it's just literally Ross from late <laughs> 70s to the early 90s, and just like, that's at 125, 250, 500, uh, and uh, like, given the fact that it's a completely different riding style for all three bikes, really yeah. uh, speaks to his dominance. But uh, enough about Canadian moto. Let's head on over to Spain where uh, KTM came calling and uh, and you answered. You headed on over to uh, to Spain to uh, to do some GPs uh, uh, before uh, getting homesick and coming back. But uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your adventure uh, overseas. Yeah, that was, that was pretty exciting for me that year. Uh, I actually... Um uh, in that year, I, I went. I, w- I was going to do the Supercross, just kind of the local uh, West Coast, uh, because I didn't have a ride that year. Um, so I went down, bought a Honda, took it up to Pro Circuit, and uh, Mitch fixed it all up for me. And uh, the thing was running really good. I, I didn't really, I didn't have a practice bike, so I was kind of utilizing the same bike. Um, so I went to uh, the first race in Anaheim. Um, you know, just to see what I could do and, uh, try out the Honda and, you know, actually I didn't feel that comfortable on the bike cause I didn't, I didn't get enough practice time and, and whatnot. But, um, at that race, uh, my results weren't great. And, uh, after the race, some guys from Spain, uh, they were the KTM importer of Spain and somehow they got contacted with me then in Anaheim, and I met them down here in San Diego, and uh, we talked a little bit, and they were interested in having a guy come over there and ride the Spanish National Championships along with uh, uh, a, a few selected GPs um, that year. So I didn't really have anything else going, so um, 
you know, I got a little deal over there, and uh, it was a good experience, and I'm glad I did it. I got to meet some good people and travel around, and uh, I lived in a little town about 40 minutes east of uh, Barcelona, a uh, pretty cool little town called uh, Manresa, and um, overall, it's pretty good. You know, I did, like I said, I got homesick because I didn't have anybody over there with me or or anything. It was pretty much all the, uh, you know, the people from KTM Spain, which treated yeah. me really well. And uh, but I, I had a good time over there. For sure, actually, probably one of the more uh, positive stories you hear about going over to Europe. Of course, we always get homesick, especially in the pre-internet area era, where uh, like uh, it's it's hard to even make a phone call across uh, to, exactly. uh, to get back. So like, getting that connection back home would be extremely tough for a guy who uh, uh, deeply rooted in uh, in back back home and 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 you want to head back there at some point and uh, uh, once you did come back uh, laid your roots and um, decided to uh, go in with uh, a couple of guys on a company uh, on, on a different on a little bit of a. a different idea than motocross uh you're out there on the water and uh one of the things that was really big in the late 80s was of course the stand-up jet skis and uh you capitalized on that by starting uh with a few friends uh jet pilot so uh tell us a little bit about uh creating that brand and uh how that kind of launched for you yeah it was a cool uh transition in my life from racing um because my buddies they were motocross uh, guys too and you know they they grew up here in southern california and um actually in 86 uh one of my partners phil johnson um he went to bear sea with me and he was he was kind of wrenching on my bike for me at that time in, in 86 and we got to travel around and in uh over in france they called the riders uh pilots you know so that's kind of where the name Jet Pilot came up. You know, we we're, you know, jet ski, you know, rider, you know, we were all into motocross, and somehow we came up with that uh, Jet Pilot name, and uh, it stuck. And um, so I ended up doing that. I After I raced, I started working, you know, I'd work like, you know, three days a week up there doing that, and, and uh, it was pretty small at that time, but, um, you know, I wore a lot of hats and did what I had to do, and, and uh, eventually I got into the uh, kind of the art and design um, of the wetsuits, and that's kind of how I, I started in graphic design, um, pretty much uh, self-taught, and uh, you know, I'm still doing it today. No doubt, and that that's kind of uh, it's interesting that you were doing that all the way back uh, in in almost the, the graphic design infancy. Uh, someone who uh, taught himself from the grassroots up, and uh, to this point, literally, uh, this is this was kind of a, a technology and a technique that uh, was was almost kind of a bit unheard of. So you've been uh, into graphic design for as long as graphic design has been a thing. Yeah, it was pretty funny because when I worked there. Um, you know, every, everything was done, you know, by films and layers and all this. And, you know, you'd have to get things type set to, to make an ad. And I mean, you'd, it would take you know, over a week to finish like a one page ad just because you had to have all this film work done and, mm -hmm. you know, separations and whatnot. And, and at that same time, <clears throat> one of the guys in, in the company, he said, Hey, you know, 
he had this like new Mac, uh, I think it was an SC something, and you know it had like uh, this this program like Adobe Illustrator. And I'm like, holy shit, you know <laughs> what's this? You know how how do you how do you use Magic. this? <laughs> and that's kind of how it started. Uh, it was yeah, it was, it was a good experience though to come from that era um, into what it is today. I mean, you, you know you can throw together an ad in, in an hour and be done. <laughs> so yeah. in, a lot a long ways, way. in, in a lot of ways, the, the graphic design side of things has uh, accelerated even faster than, uh, than motocross. Uh, we went from, uh, you, you've gone from air cooled carbureted two strokes to, uh, aluminum frame EFI four strokes. And, uh, from layering like a, a week to do a one page ad to, uh, you could probably cook up a, a brand new logo on inside five minutes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, it was kind of cool, you know, growing up, being able to grow up when, there were air-cooled bikes, and, you know, now to when they're just state-of-the-art. And uh, I really do uh, favor the the simpler kind of times, totally. like the, you know, uh, like Myosa. I mean, I mean, the thing is so simple. It's, you know, head, cylinder, <laughs> carburetor, not a lot of extra parts, so it's pretty neat. Well, that's the thing about those bikes is that uh, when something goes wrong, it, there really is only like a, a like a certain number of things that could possibly be wrong with it. So, as far as like diagnosing the issue, it's 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 rather simple. It's it's pretty cool to see. Um, and as far as the, uh, the the design side of things, many would be uh, be interested to know that uh, the company that uh, um, that has been hugely prominent in uh, in lubricants in uh, in motocross. Maxima Racing Oils, uh, you're responsible for their iconic uh, image and their logo. So uh, tell us a little bit about the development of that logo. And uh, I got you got to imagine you're pretty proud of, of seeing that still used today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I grew up with uh, Dick Lachine and Ronnie Lachine growing up out here in SoCal. And, you know, when Dick started the company, uh, he started the company in 79, uh, I think one of the first products was the Caster 927, and, you know, so I'd known Dick for a long time, and, and you know, I was working at Jet Pilot still, and, you know, I, kinda, I was transitioning from that, and, you know, I talked to Dick, and, you know, I started, I think I started working there a couple times a week, you know, because they needed some help, you know, the brand was growing, they needed help with ads, and, you know, photography and all that. So that's how I got connected with, uh, with Dick and Maxima and, you know, um, you know, I, I don't remember the, I think it was the late nineties or so I developed that, uh, logo. And, uh, so it's stuck till today and, uh, I'm pretty proud of that. And, uh, I'm still working at Maxima today, having a good time. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty much managing, um, all the media and, uh, the graphic department there. And, um, so it's going pretty well. No kidding. Uh, to, to develop a logo that ended up, uh, it's like, uh, most people, if they, they do use the oil, uh, they'll, they'll go as far as to include that on their graphic kit. And, uh, you go to the races, uh, or you go to the track on a regular basis and, and see that logo just about everywhere. That's gotta be pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's, a. am pretty proud of that. And, uh, one of the, you know, cooler things I've done in my graphic uh, 
experiences and um yeah it's, it's all good uh what, what would uh qualify as something that uh some of your lesser known work that you're still proud of uh that uh uh just turned out great for you or uh, if there's a website that you've designed or like a, a logo that you've designed that uh, you really uh feel like you knocked out of the park oh man uh that's a tough one but uh you know i i really enjoy i i do uh i put on uh a race uh every year a vintage race uh, it's called the socal vintage mx classic and i have a yes. lot of fun uh doing the graphics for that you know developing you know kind of the old school uh logos and whatnot and uh that's probably you know the thing i like to do most is kind of work on my own stuff and and uh you know, make some cool shirts and, uh, cool stuff for the event. Um, so that's, that's about what I did. Yeah. That's wild, man. Now, uh, of course, uh, this weekend coming up, uh, and you have, um, uh, bowed out of, uh, the day in the dirt, uh, a race that, uh, normally you would be dusting off that OSA and, uh, and heading out to, to, uh, to, to, to cut some laps this year, uh, not going, um, Tell us a little bit about your uh, experiences with Day in the Dirt and uh, your decision to uh, to not participate this year. But uh, I I gotta I gotta imagine you won't be uh, missing that one for too long. Yeah, you know I just I've been doing it for a lot of years uh, consecutively, and you know I've, it's not like I miss Thanksgiving or anything. You know when I'm doing it, but um, you know it's just kind of gearing up for it. And you know my girls are you know they're home from college and so we wanted to spend time with them this year so that's kind of what we're doing and you know it's kind of cool because i don't have to worry about you know getting ready for the race and getting all the stuff ready and uh, but i i will miss the race because it's a good experience and you know i like seeing all the guys it's just a you know it's a one-off you know incredible you know weekend of racing and just being able to you know talk to all you know the racers and you know the industry people and uh you know kenny's done a great job with that that race and and it's still going today and they they just make it better every year that they do and i've got to make my way down uh for for those in fact every, it seems like every single weekend i had to i look at uh, an event going down in southern california or somewhere in the states and uh just kick myself for uh continuing to live in the great white north but uh at, at some point that's going to have to end for me as well so i'll uh, i'll make my way down and to enjoy it um couple of questions I had for you before I let you go, and I know uh, I've kept you longer than I, I intended, but uh, too bad I like talking to you too much. Um, yeah. Best bike or bike that you raced as either a, a young rider or a professional rider uh, that uh, you wish you could have back today? Oh, man. that would I'd have a long list, but I, you know... The ones that come to mind would be that 1980 125 works, uh, 125. I mean, that was thing was like a work of art. I mean, you know, everything just made by hand and titanium and, you know, machined and, um, you know, the thing was light as a feather. And, uh, so it would be that one, um, the 81 Yamaha 125, you know, just for what it was. I mean, it was, you know, aluminum tank. I mean, those were just incredible. And, uh, and I, I really would like to have my 83, um, 
Suzuki, either one of them. I mean, the the Supercross bike just just being so unique. I would just love to have that thing hanging from my ceiling or something. You know, I mean, you didn't think about it that that at that time. You know, yeah. trying to do that. Um, you know, but now it's just like, oh man, why didn't I try to, you know, get one of those bikes and and keep it? But uh, they pretty they kept pretty tight rein on all those and uh actually my own mechanic was kind of the guy that would take them and crush them all because they didn't want you know i don't know the real reasons but they didn't want all the parts out there they didn't want you know other people looking seeing what it was and you know obviously for liability they didn't want all you know these spare parts out there and so they would just take them down and crush them so no one could use them. <laughs> That's wild. That that reminds me of uh, a story that uh, Chad Watts would tell me at the end of every year when he was working with Ricky Carmichael. They would take the excavator, they would dig a hole, they would throw all the old parts, like the broken, beat up Kawasaki parts that Ricky had been blowing through over the last year. They would throw them in a hole and they would just just like cover it up and just like all oh, the fans that would kill to just even hold on to one piece of that stuff wild um yeah you don't appreciate it until you kind of quit and totally. get to reflect on it and uh yeah it would be nice to have some of those the same goes with old gear i mean i i had bags and bags of old you know jt gear and and you know old helmets and stuff and and like you know, after I quit, I mean, it's like, you know, I'd give a helmet to my friend here or there, or, you know, you just didn't really care about it then, but now I'm just like, I'm hating it. I'm like, or I wish I had all those old helmets and my old gear. I do have a few here and there, but, you know, I wish I would have kept more of them. Totally, totally. Just to eat, if for nothing else, then uh, to to have those memories as well as uh, I'm sure you have so few of those jerseys that now, if anyone was to ask you, like, hey, do you have any jer- jerseys from the, back in the year, back in the day, like uh, you wouldn't dare uh, let any of them out of your sight at this point because uh, you have so few of them. So if you would have kept exactly. more, you might have been able to to hook some more people up because uh, exactly. those are your memories now. Exactly. But, uh, uh, as far as uh, your teammates, and of course you had quite a few, if you had to uh, drive across this uh, grand country that is the United States of America to do a car ride or a, a road trip with one of your teammates, who would it be and why? Well, it depends, yeah, where we're going, I guess, but, uh, you know, going I, to, uh, you're going to a, a historic motocross track to go race your Osas. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I'm still pretty good friends with Ronnie because I work with him at Maxima, and yeah. you know, uh, it depends if it was like the Ronnie of the '80s. Maybe not. You know, we wouldn't do, be doing <laughs> a lot of riding. But uh, you know, Brock's still a good friend of mine. Uh, it's hard to say. It'd probably be between those two guys. I mean. Uh, those are probably the closest guys I, I am still uh, connected with because Rockville helps me out uh, with uh, tires and stuff every now and again. And whenever I have an event, you know, my vintage uh, events, uh, he's always helping out and, and vice versa. Uh, his son has um, cystic fibrosis and 
We've done a few events, and I help them out, you know, designing stuff and getting promotional stuff done for them, and um, so he helps me out as well. So, um, yeah, still two pretty good friends. There you go. Well, uh, maybe rent a van and take the two of them. You guys can switch off driving. And, of course, between the three of you, uh, about 120 years of motocross stories and knowledge. So uh, you guys could probably uh, go from one side of the country and back without uh, without glossing over anything twice. Well, I'm pretty sure Brock would talk pretty much the whole time, so I wouldn't really get to uh, talk much. But, uh, you know, he, he's, uh, he's definitely got some stories. So... Uh, and, and obviously Ronnie would too. Uh, no I wouldn't get a much words in otherwise. Edgewise, no, for sure. Uh, of course, uh, uh, the Golden Boy, a guy who has his own uh, his own radio show in and of itself. Uh, those of us with radio shows, we don't really know when to shut up sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they have a, <laughs> uh, the Bike Week radio show, and it's kind of on hold right now. I think they're transitioning to something else, uh, another station possibly, so... I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. Fair enough. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to get your take on uh, racing today. How much do you pay attention to it? How much uh, do you follow the races? And uh, what are your thoughts on some of the uh, the current champions, contenders, and uh, uh, basically motocross as a whole right now? Actually, I follow it quite a bit. Just uh, kind of being in charge of management of the Maxima you know, media and whatnot, you know, we have uh, tons of sponsored teams and, you know, we've got to connect with, you know, all the, the magazines and, and team writer, or not the, the teams just to get, you know, images and whatnot. So we stay pretty much pretty close to it. And, um, I don't know. It's, you know, it's just a whole different generation, a uh, whole different, uh, way of doing things i mean you know you got the 18 wheelers the big rigs now when we had you know box vans and you know i i really like growing up in that era you know which is yeah you maybe guys more easy ups it was more i think it was more team oriented i mean if you look back then i mean we all pretty much generally looked the same you know with the you know, same colors of the team and, uh, you know, not the same brands of clothing sometimes, but they all resembled, you know, I really liked that era when everything was identifiable. You had Suzuki with the blue and yellow and Yamaha with the, you know, yellow and black and obviously red Honda, you know, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Absolutely. No, it was a great era to be in. And, uh, I like, Honestly, could probably have you on here for another uh, hour or so, but uh, the the fact is is that eventually uh, I do have to let you uh, get to uh, the festivities that is American Thanksgiving. Of course, ours was a couple of months ago, but uh, I really appreciate you giving me some time to to just chat moto and uh, and all things uh, Scott Burnworth. Um, Scott, I'd love to have you on again sometime, uh, somewhere closer to uh, your race to kind of like highlight that a little bit. But uh, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to go down memory lane with you and uh, kind of uncover some of these uh, great memories and stories. And uh, it was awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed being on. You know, I, I like uh, kind of reliving the old, you know, the past and uh, and talking about moto because I still like to do it and I'd love to be on again and. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. 
Perfect. Uh, we'll have to get uh, you and uh, Ronnie Lachine on together and just swap stories. Sounds good. Perfect. Well, uh, don't hang up just yet, but for, for podcast sake, we'll, uh, we'll cut it off right there. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.